Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to be talking with Craig Silvey, author of much-loved Australian classic Jasper Jones. We will be discussing his brilliant new novel, Honey Bee, published by Alan and Unwin, one of the most hotly anticipated books of this year, or in fact of any year. There's something for everyone in this glorious novel, from cordon bleu cooking with Julia Child to elaborate drag shows and phony bank heists. So I hope that you really enjoy this conversation. Craig Sylvie is an author and screenwriter from Fremantle, Western Australia. Honeybee is his third novel. He wrote his first, Rhubarb, when he was only 19. It placed him on the Sydney Morning Herald's Best Young Australian Novelists list in 2005. His best-selling second novel, Jasper Jones, was published in 2009. It was nominated for many awards here and overseas and was the Australian Book Industry Awards Book of the Year for 2010. It's been translated into 12 languages and has sold an incredible more than 800,000 copies here and around the world. It's been made into a movie and a play, which many listeners will be familiar with both of these. Both of them were very successful. And Craig knew from a young age that he wanted to be a writer, but when he was 12, he wanted to be a paleontologist. Craig, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much, Nicole. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about Honeybee. Would you like to start by reading an extract? And I think you're going to start at the beginning. That's right. Yeah, I'm going to start at page one. Seems apt. This is chapter one, which is called The End. I wasn't cold, but I was shivering when I walked onto the Clayton Road overpass. I wasn't scared either, even when I climbed over the rail. I didn't really feel much of anything. It was late at night and it was quiet. No cars went past. I looked at the road below. It was a long way down. I focused on the spot where I would probably land between the white line and the brown gravel. I wondered if it would hurt or if I would die straight away. Then I wondered who would find me. Maybe it would be a truck driver or a shift worker. I felt bad for them. I must have been thinking about things for a while because when I looked across to my right, I saw a man down the other end of the overpass. He was smoking a cigarette. I could see the orange end glowing in the dark. I got nervous. He was probably walking his dog or something. I didn't want him to come closer. I closed my eyes and I let go of the rail, but then I realized it would be awful if he saw me do it. I decided to wait. I looked back at the man from under my hoodie and I noticed something that I hadn't seen at first. He was on the other side of the rail too. I wasn't sure what to do. I knew I should call out or say something, but I didn't have the courage. He ashed his cigarette and flicked it. I watched it spin in the air and hit the road below. When I looked back up, the man was staring at me. I turned away. I felt like I'd been caught out. I heard his footsteps walking towards me. He didn't rush. I shuffled across and kept my head down. I thought about falling then and there, but my mind got really crowded and I froze. I flinched when I heard his voice. I'm not here to talk you out of it. 
I was still looking down. Don't come any closer, I said. Righto. I guessed he was a couple of meters away. Just stay there. I understand. He was calm. I sneaked a look at him. He was old. He had a short grey beard and he wore a dark wool jumper and grey pants. He leaned on the rail and looked down at the road. He didn't say anything else. I edged further away from him. He didn't move, but it felt like he was following me. I couldn't stop shaking. My teeth were clacking together. My head was still throbbing from before, and there was a high-pitched ringing sound in my ears. I felt so panicked and dizzy that my mind floated outside my body, and I could see myself from above. Everything went still, and nothing mattered. It was peaceful and silent up there. I watched myself lean forwards, and that's when I dropped. Let's start with you telling us what your book's about. What is Honeybee about? Well, Honeybee is about uh, a young teenager called Sam Watson, who we meet late one night on a quiet overpass, who climbs over the rail and looks down with the intention of ending their life. And at the other end of the bridge, they see an old man smoking his last cigarette, uh, who is there uh, to end his own struggle. And the two meet uh, and their fates are forever changed. And Honeybee is ultimately about the relationship that blooms between the two of them and the efforts that they make to repair each other. Um, and despite its grim and bleak beginnings, uh, it's actually a very life-affirming, hopeful story uh, about the importance of support and understanding and community and love. Craig, you're inspired to write it by an incident that your brother witnessed. Would you like to tell us a bit about that? That's right. Um, you know, often authors are at pains to talk about uh, the, the genesis of their, of their work because often it's quite abstract. You don't often know where an idea comes from or, or why it's come to you. But the provenance of Honeybee is actually quite clear. It stems from a real event. Um, you're right. One, late one night, my brother uh, was picking up his partner from the airport and, and driving home to, to Fremantle. And as he crossed the Canning Highway overpass, uh, he, he spotted a young person who was standing on the wrong side of the railing and was uh, precariously poised. So he pulled over immediately, concerned, uh, and he called the police while his partner... Uh, got out of the car and approached. Um, her name is Sam. She's my sister-in-law. And she approached largely with the ambition to distract them while help was on the way, essentially. And after he called the police, my brother contacted me. Uh, and I was at home at the office uh, working. And I felt immediately connected to this moment. I was worried. I was concerned. I was heartbroken. Uh, it felt very tense. Um, and he continued to give me updates. So Sam approached this young person and they talked about everything and nothing uh, until they volunteered the reasons why they were there. And they were struggling with their gender identity. They had lost the support of their family and friends. They'd been kicked out of home. Uh, they were alone in the world and 
they found themselves in an anguished, hopeless, helpless place. And this is what had led them there. Soon after the police turned up, uh, they were quite brusque, business-like. They grabbed this person and dragged them over the rail and sort of deposited them in the back of an ambulance. Uh, and my sister-in-law was summarily dismissed. Uh, you know, she was told that she was no longer required. And so they drove away. Um, but we continued to worry about this person and we tried in vain to reconnect with them, to find them, but unfortunately it had a very common name. And so they proved to be elusive. And so for me, uh, I continued to, to worry and think about a very real person in a very real situation, but who principally uh, lived in my imagination. Mm. Um, and since I was very young, my process in trying to understand things has always been to read and to write about them. And so it wasn't long after that that I started fleshing this person's character out on the page uh, with no larger ambition than that to try to understand. Um, but it was something I continued to, to learn about and think about. And Honeybee is the, the story and the character that emerged. And Craig, you introduced the character of Vic, didn't you? And the fact of Vic being at the same bridge at the same time with the same intent. That's right. That was the... That was the narrative spark, I suppose, that um, led me to believe intuitively that there was a novel there. Mm. Um, it, was, it was more than a character study, that there was a story to explore. And it was the, the contrast in their characters, um, uh, but also their similarities that felt as though there was a, a great weight to the narrative uh, and that they would be able to be uh, influential in each other's lives. We're going to come to talk a little bit about Vic later on, but let's start with talking about Sam Watson, your narrator and main character. Sam's 14 when we meet them on the bridge, and we learn very early on that Sam doesn't have a father, just a mum, Sarah. Could you talk to us a little bit about Sam's relationship with their mother, Sarah, when Sam is young? Well, it's complicated, uh, Sam and Sarah. They, they have their own universe. So Sarah is... Uh, Sarah has Sam when she's quite young uh, and not equipped to raise a child. Um, Sarah has issues with maturity. Uh, uh, Sarah is in many respects volatile, inconsiderate uh, and inconsistent. So Sam's upbringing is in many respects quite neglectful. Um, and lacks nourishment. It's quite insecure. They move a lot. Um, and at any moment, Sam's aware that things could be uprooted uh, and they will have to start again, essentially. However, because it is their own universe and because uh, Sarah looms so large in Sam's life, Sam has such a strong loyalty uh, to her mother. Um, and it muddies. Uh, her opinion of what families are and also of, of who she is ultimately. Um, and so it's fraught. Sam has a very difficult upbringing and it influences uh, the way that uh, she approaches relationships with people um, and uh, the way that she responds to, to the world. 
from now on, listeners, I'll be referring to Sam as she. What is life? Well, you've given us a feeling of what life was like or what the, Sam's home life was like. Tell us about school. What's school like for Sam when she's young? Yeah, again, Sam feels a little isolated and alienated, can't quite fit in, um, but does her best. Uh, you know, there's nothing abrasive about Sam. It's just clear to the other students that uh, she has an unusual upbringing um, and that she's a little bit different and uh, kids can be ruthless in that kind of environment. Um, Sam also exhibits uh, elements of behaviour that uh, tend to isolate her. So, for example, she loves having long hair, uh, you know, and, uh, and behaves in such a way that, that other kids don't respond to well, put it that way. Uh, and so it, again, serves to, to isolate her, unfortunately, and to make her wary and a little bit leery of connecting with people. So Sam's life with his mother, Sarah, is they're a pretty tight-knit little couple until Sam turns 11 and Sarah meets a man called Steve. Tell us about Steve. What do we know about him? Right, so, so Sarah meets Steve uh, at a particularly... Uh, difficult moment in, in their lives. Things are very insecure financially um, uh, and, and times are very tough. And so... They're living in it, their car, aren't they? That's right, yeah. Uh, and Steve offers more or less a way out. But unfortunately, he's uh, quite manipulative and, and ruthless uh, and possessive. Um, he's an aggressive man. He's retrograde in his thinking. Uh, uh, you know, embodies all those elements of, of toxic masculinity, I suppose, that, uh, um, uh, that, that we talk about. Uh, and it's something that is a great danger to Sam and is a great threat. Uh, so things go from fraught to, to even more dangerous, and even more volatile for, for Sam and makes her life uh, even more difficult. So Steve is a... a in his embodiment of toxic masculinity, I suppose, is, is, a, is a critical antagonist uh, in, in the story. Craig, how does, or what impact does Steve have on Sam's relationship with her mother, Sarah? Right, being so possessive, uh, he almost overwhelms uh, the household and, and claims Sarah for himself, more or less. Uh, and this drives a, a kind of wedge in the relationship between Sarah and Sam. And as Sarah drifts closer to Steve uh, for various reasons, um, it, it impacts the bond that the two have. And, and Sam feels envious, uh, feels further isolated. Um, it drives uh, even wider fissures into her sense of self-esteem. She wonders what she's done wrong. Um, and the one constant that she felt that she had, which was a relationship uh, with her mother, uh, now feels as though it's uh, on shaky ground, essentially. So it's, it, it provides difficulty. How does Steve treat Sam? And I want to just ask, give one particular example, something I should have made clearer a little bit sooner, is that Honeybee is the sort of pet name that Sarah has had for Sam when Sam's young. Just let's take as an, as an example of how um, Steve treats Sam. 
How does he feel about uh, Sarah calling Sam honeybee? Steve has uh, very traditional notions of how children should be raised and particularly boys. Um, and I feel as though now is uh, as good a time as, as any to discuss uh, Sam's uh, issues with gender identity and gender expression. Right. So, so Sam is assigned male at birth. However, uh, Sam's uh, gender identity does not uh, embody uh, that, that description. So Sam identifies as female and uh, expresses this through those signifiers like clothes, uh, like behaviour, uh, the things that she is interested in um, and uh, that is a natural gender expression uh, for her. And unfortunately, through her uh, relationships at school, uh, through uh, the way that her mother has responded because Sam loves to wear Sarah's clothes, um, uh, you know, wears her makeup, uh, identifies as as female. She feels as though that is uh, uh, where she is represented. Um, it's these it's these small expressions of femininity uh, that Steve rejects outright. Um, and the name Honeybee, uh, for one, is is something that he rails against. Um, but also puts pressure on Sam to be a boy, to be more masculine, to, uh, uh, to embody the traits that belong to that particular tribe as he sees it. Um, and what this does is it forces Sam to retreat and it also forces Sam, who lacks the knowledge and, and understanding to uh, recognise who she is and, and what she's trying to express, uh, forces her to retreat and to uh, feel ashamed and to wonder what's wrong. Um, and so, you know, Steve piles a, a great deal of emotional pressure on, on Sam uh, in many respects. Craig, I want to talk a little bit about that. When we first see Sam dressing up uh, in women's clothes, I think it's when Sam's about 10 and she finds clothes in the communal laundry in the apartment block where she's living with Sarah. When she starts dressing in the women's clothes. Very interestingly, she feels mixed emotions, doesn't she? At the time that she's dressing up in the clothes, she feels incredibly happy and relieved. But afterwards, she feels ashamed, even as a 10-year-old child. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? That's right. There's, there's a, a euphoria that uh, washes over Sam when she sees herself as she truly is. Um, when, when she wears... Uh, the clothes that uh, that embody who she is and she sees herself uh, as she is. Uh, she feels free and she feels as though this is, this is who she is. Um, however, given the fact that uh, she's under pressure to appear as a boy, to act as a boy might, uh, to, to, to live in that way, um, there's, there's a shame that is attached to uh, behaving in this way. And so it forces her to be secretive um, it, uh, and it 
forces her to feel guilty about uh, enjoying uh, representing herself in, in the way that she really is. And it's confusing. She feels as though she's the only person in the world that, uh, that acts this way. It's further isolating. Uh, and so it, uh, it, it knocks her confidence uh, e even more and makes her more wary of, uh, of uh, uh, connecting with people and, and confiding in them. I want to ask you about her relationship with her body, with her physical self. At one point, she sneaks in to see, I think it's the movie of Beauty and the Beast. And she says, I felt bad for the beast who was lonely and trapped inside a hideous body. Is that a reflection of how Sam herself feels about her own body? This is later. So this is when Sam is uh, a little bit older uh, and has a, a more acute understanding of, of, of who she is and, and has a, uh, uh, maybe a more intellectual understanding of uh, what she's contending with. And so, yeah, the movie, The Beauty and the Beach, Beast, uh, speaks to her in that sense that, uh, that, that, the, that the externalities um, and uh, the, uh, the outward appearance does not embody uh who she really is and so uh yeah there's a there's a connection there between uh how sam feels and uh um uh, you know in terms of confusion and isolation and self-loathing uh and uh concern when we first meet sam she's 14 and she's 14 for a lot of the book that's obviously a time for teenagers when their bodies begin to undergo changes and obviously in Sam's case having been born a boy she is starting at the age of 14 to develop more marked masculine physical features how does she feel about that right there's a great deal of uh urgency and fear and worry uh that that haunts Sam knowing that her body is developing uh in a direction that doesn't represent who she is uh and so what that does is amplify everything she's feeling uh and makes everything more insecure um it's frightening and uh she doesn't feel as though she has a clear way out there and uh it it contributes to uh you know, feelings of uh, anxiety and worry uh, and depression, um, and it is it is a source of great anguish. Um, and so, it, it's it's something that she dreads, but it's something that is happening and happening rapidly. Uh, so it, it puts her under a great deal of pressure. So we've mentioned some of the emotions that she's experiencing. There's shame, there's guilt, there's sorrow, there's sadness, there's loneliness, there's isolation. And she says there are a number of things that she says that are just so upsetting. She says things like, I tried harder to fit in, but there wasn't a space for me. She says, and she says this several times, words to this effect, I had been born wrong and couldn't be fixed, a bad person born in the wrong body. I'm going to ask you a little bit later about the research that you did for this book, but I know that you did speak to a lot of trans people. Those sorts of feelings which you're describing via Sam 
is that the experience that they spoke of to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Look, obviously I'm acutely aware that Sam's journey is not my lived experience. Um, and it's always been incredibly important to me that uh, when I am writing from beyond my own history, that I do so with uh, great understanding, great respect, uh, sensitivity and care and consultation. So what this required of me is to listen and to learn. Um, and that's ultimately what I did. You know, I read as widely as I could. Yeah. How, where did you start? Who, who did what? Well, in your acknowledgement, you talk about some of the people that you've spoken to. Would you just like to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Right. Yeah. So, you know, and I connected with support networks and I uh, was able to, to uh, meet with and interview a number of uh, trans and, and gender diverse people who were generous enough to share their stories and experiences with me and answer my many, many questions. Um, you know, I, I, I met with, with lots of people from, uh, who have vastly different backgrounds and experiences. Um, and that was hugely influential. Uh, ultimately the most influential aspect of, of how Honeybee was crafted. I couldn't have written this story without their contributions. Um, and I wouldn't have written it without their blessing. Uh, that, was I my was, next, that was my next question because I, I was going to put to you inevitably, given the hot topic of identity politics and cultural appropriation, which has been a hot topic of discussion in literary circles for some time. I wondered, yes, I wondered if that was going to be one of your responses. I wanted to ask you, of the people that you spoke to, whose experience you, you listened to and you've incorporated in your writing, were they encouraging and supportive about you telling their story in effect in this book? Absolutely. A hundred percent of the time. It was so heartening to me. Uh, and I was so grateful for the support and enthusiasm and encouragement of everyone that I spoke to um, when it came to developing Honeybee. People were so generous with their time uh, and so intimate and forthright with the advice that, uh, that they gave me. Um, and I've done my very best to honour that uh, in telling Sam's story. It's not my intention to speak on behalf of the trans community, nor is it my intention to uh, try to capture some kind of definitive trans experience, because uh, if there's one thing my research, uh, uh, one thing that emerged from my research is that that doesn't exist. Everybody has their own experiences. Um, and so all I can attend to is Sam, is Sam's story. Sam's a very specific story. Sam's a very specific set of circumstances and pressures in a very specific time and place. Um, however, uh, any description in Honeybee uh, as it relates to dysphoria or gender identity is not left to invention. Every single word is influenced by uh, research and reportage, um, and that's ultimately, uh, I, I think, how I've been able to, to capture Sam's story. Let's talk now about what happens to Sam after she meets Vic on that bridge, and I want to focus particularly on three characters, including Vic himself. So Sam's life undergoes an enormous change after he meets Vic. First of all, let's talk about Vic himself. What do we know about him? Well, we, we learned that uh, uh, Vic is quite reserved. 
Uh, he's very slow to come out of his shell and express himself. But we know almost instantly that Vic uh, is uh, a man with a very strong and admirable moral code um, that he is a genuinely good person, caring person. Um, but we also know that he is grieving. Uh, he is hurt. He's isolated himself. Um, and that he is tired. Uh, you know, he's been alone for a long while. His wife has passed away and he's still reeling many years later. Um, and they'd been married for a very long time, hadn't they? They'd been married for 37 years and everything that we read suggests to us that it's a very, very strong, happy marriage. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, to, to hear Vic discuss it, uh, he would, uh, his his wife, Edie, was his whole world. And uh, when she passed away, his world ended in many respects. Um, and it's still something he's coming to terms with. Um, however, the, the entrance of Sam kind of shakes things up a little bit and Vic has opportunities to redeem himself. Some of the areas of his life that still haunt him. Um, and to recognize the benefits also of loving somebody again and to having real genuine human connections. They mean a lot to each other. These two, it's they're very, their relationship is slow to evolve for various reasons. Um, however, the, the, the bond that emerges between the two of them is life-changing for the both of them. The language that you use is very careful. When you talk about Sam in the early days of meeting Vic and staying in Vic's home, quite a lot we hear Sam saying that she feels safe. She's one of the answers she's given to, I think it was Vic or somebody earlier, about going home. She says, oh, no, home's not a safe place for me. But being with Vic she does feel safe. How important is safety to her? Well, it's, it's everything. It's, 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 dare I say, it's almost life and death for Sam. Um, you know, we meet Sam at a very precarious moment in her life. Um, and I shudder to think of what would have happened if Vic wasn't at that bridge that night. And so you know, Sam is still dealing with, the, you know, the same issues that, uh, that, that, that uh, motivated her to, to go to that place. Um, but being in Vic's world temporarily suspends some of those pressures. Um, and so it's, for the first time in a long time, soothing and calming and comforting for Sam to be in that world. And Sam actually uh, sort of moves into Vic's old bedroom after his partner dies. Uh, Vic won't re-enter uh, that the bedroom that they shared, and so Sam largely has this space which has been frozen in time uh, to herself. And she finds Vic's partner Edie's old diaries um, and gets to know Vic and his uh, and Edie uh, through those testimonies, you know. And in doing so, learns a lot about these people, but also a lot about herself. Um, she sees a lot of herself in, in Edie and they kind of connect uh, through these diaries. Um, and then, of course, there's Edie's wardrobe, uh, uh, which is uh, extensive um, and very fashionable. And so Sam just falls in love with Edie. Um, and so it's, 
it's an intoxicating place for Sam to be. It's, uh, it's like nowhere else she's ever lived and uh, she's never felt uh, such security. Vic is very consistent. Um, you know, he has his faults, but there's something that is infectious about being there. And, uh, you know, it also heightens the dread of going back to where she'd been. Something else that's really lovely, I think, that we see um, in Sam is how well she responds. And we're going to talk in a minute about kindness and empathy, but how well she responds to kindness. So we find out, I won't give too much away about the Julia Child plot um, th- thread, but we find, find out that Sam's a fantastic cook and when she's treated with love, she responds with love. All she wants to do is to do nice things for Vic to show her gratitude and one of those things is cooking. Which brings me to the next trio of characters, Aggie, uh, who Sam meets because she's living in Vic's house. Tell us about Aggie. What's she like? Oh, I'm uh, rapturously excited to talk about Aggie Mimaduma. Um, Aggie is a teenager like Sam and lives a couple of houses down from, from Vic. Uh, and they have a sort of chance meeting uh, one morning. Um, and Aggie is just delightful from the very beginning. Uh, and the, the two of them connect. Well, Sam really has no choice but to be sort of uh, rushed into, into Aggie's orbit. She's so vivacious and so friendly um, and so kind uh, that Sam just, uh, despite her natural resistance uh, to connecting with other people, uh, can't help but be swept into, into Aggie's orbit. And so Sam enters this very nuclear a uh, very middle-class, uh, very safe and secure suburban household, and it's exotic. Uh, it's why is it's it exotic? Different. Tell us about tell us about the parentage because they are the parents are a bit unusual, and that makes Aggie a little bit unusual. Well, it's only well, it's exotic in the sense that it's nothing that it's uh, it's not something that Sam has experienced before. She's never been in such a loving, tight knit. Um, safe, secure, consistent household. Um, and the, the Mima Dumas are just so, uh, you know, they're funny. They're, um, uh, you know, they chide each other. Uh, they're supportive. Um, but above all, they are loving. And so Sam gets swept up into, into this household and they almost uh, uh, want to adopt Sam, you know. They don't know really anything about Sam's background because Sam lies to them um, uh, out, of, out of shame and concern that if she tells Aggie the truth, then Aggie won't want to be her friend anymore. Um, but nevertheless, the, the Mima Dumas just, uh, you know, co-opt Sam in, into their household and, and she feels, uh, you know, it takes a lot of adjustment for Sam to get used to it. Um, she's not used to being accepted readily. Uh, she's not used to being supported. She's not used to being loved. And she's not used to the way that these kind of relationships unfurl, that, that someone would care about you and uh, ask about you and want to do nice things for you. Um, and so it's, it's exotic in that sense. It's, it's exotic in the sense that uh, it's, not, it's not like anything she's ever experienced before. Um, but Aggie is just, uh, you know, garrulous, opinionated, large-hearted, whip-smart, um, she's a geek. She's funny. Oh, I hope she's funny. You know, and and you know, she's a complete nerd. Uh, you know, she loves Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, she's uh, and Buffy. 
she's um, she's just her own person and uh, you know should be celebrated for being so I think she's great she's a fantastic character Craig there's something very poignant in their first meeting when um, Aggie's brother comes home and she introduces Sam to her brother as her friend how does that make Sam feel yeah it's 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 a surprise. It's confronting. It's it's wild. Yeah, she's never had a friend before, mm-hmm. and uh, to to hear those, those words uh, be expressed is just uh, you know it's, it's deeply unusual. She doesn't quite know how to react. It's, uh, it's um, overwhelming, I suppose you might put it, um, and it's something that takes Sam a long time to adjust to. You know, her relationship with Vic is. Uh, it moves a little slower, and so it's maybe uh, easier to adapt. Whereas Aggie just decides from the outset that they're going to be best friends, uh, and Sam just gets, uh, you know, wrapped up uh, and, and dragged in and loved from the from the get go. Okay, let's talk about the third of these fantastic characters that becomes a special person for Sam, and that's Bella Fitzgerald. That's Who right. Who is she, and how does Sam meet her? <laughs> Well, uh, so Sam uh, determines that, that, that she and Vic should do uh, something that they've always wanted to do before they die. Uh, and for Sam, Sam expresses that, uh, that she always wanted to go to see a drag show uh, and always wanted to attend uh, because uh, drag and drag culture is, has been hugely influential in Sam's life. Um, and so Vic agrees to take Sam to, to see a, a, a drag performance um, at, at a fictional bar called The Gavel uh, here in Perth. And unfortunately, Sam, you know, doesn't make it. I won't, I won't reveal too much of the, uh, of the plot. However, it's, it's during uh, uh, their attempts to, to see this drag performance that Sam encounters a drag queen called Fella Fitzgerald. I have to say, Nicole, I'm very proud of that name. Because, yeah, well, it's very difficult to come up with new drag names, I've got to tell you. They, Bella strikes up a, a friendship with Sam. How does she treat Sam and what advice does she give her? Well, Fella gives Sam a great deal of advice, ultimately. But uh, at their first meeting, uh, you know, Fella's very protective and almost maternal with Sam and sees... Uh, almost sees a part of herself, or uh, I say herself, um, you know, out of drag. Philip Fitzgerald is called Peter and he's a nurse. Um, you know, sees a lot of themselves in Sam. Uh, and the, the advice that she principally gives her in the, in the first place is to be who you are and to celebrate that. Um, and that that's the most important thing in the world is that you're true to yourself and, and that you ultimately come to, to love yourself. Um, fella or slash Peter uh, becomes a very pivotal uh, ally in Sam's life um, and is a huge agent of change, uh, recognises a lot of what Sam is going through um, and goes to great lengths to, to put Sam on the right path. What I want to talk about now is this whole concept of kindness and empathy, which it seems to me are threaded throughout the whole of this beautiful novel. You said earlier in our conversation, and you've said before, at the thematic heart of Honeybee is the importance of support and understanding. 
It's a very sincere, hopeful book. The three characters who we've just discussed, Vic, Aggie and Bella, and who offers um, Sam all this love and acceptance that he's never had before, are all in some way and to some extent outsiders themselves. I feel like that's a deliberate choice on your part. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm interested in outsiders. I'm interested in the people uh, who exist in the margins. Um, oftentimes they can be incredibly empathetic and understanding and compassionate themselves, largely because often they're on the outside looking in. And so these people uh, sort of swoop into Sam's life and provide in, in their own different ways. Vic is so different to Aggie. Aggie is different to Peter, um, but they are all unified by their affection for this kid and uh, their desire to see them live as who they are uh, and to support them. Um, and when you find your people and when you find uh, your supporters and people who care for you, this, these can be the most influential uh, relationships of our lives. Uh, and they can free us from our own distorted thinking. So what these relationships can do is offer us a fresh perspective on ourselves that allow us to emerge uh, and to often discard uh, feelings of self-loathing uh, and lack of confidence um, these people can galvanize us and uh, uh, free us from free us from from uh, uh, difficult, uh, unwieldy paths, I suppose. And so, these are the roles that that these uh, characters play in Sam's life, um, and are the principal agents of change for for her to, to turn her life around. And it seemed to me the other point that you were trying to make through these three is that your true family is not necessarily the family that you were born with. And Bella Fitzgerald is a, is a very good example. We learn that her parents were devout Jehovah's Witnesses who kicked her out when she was 15. And now she explains to Sam that her family, her people, her tribe, are the drag queens and the others that, that frequent that world. So is that another point you wanted to make, that maybe not, maybe, in an ideal world, your family is the one you're born with, but it's not that way for everybody and you can find your family elsewhere. That's absolutely right, yes. And, uh, you know, for, for people who are marginalised, more often than not, this is, this is the case. If we define family um, as a, a relationship that's predicated on love and support and care and consideration, then uh, it goes beyond blood it goes uh beyond you know those principal relationships um and so when we find our people and uh when we're protected under the wing of a community uh you know th these people become the most important uh uh people in our lives um you know fellow bits gerald knows this all too well uh having been kicked out of home 
living in group homes, feeling isolated, coming from a you know a very difficult background, um, but finding uh, support and love and mercy in uh, you know the LGBT community. Um, you know, Bella understands that that this is a resource that can um, support Sam and lead her out of of uh, a difficult path. A few questions to wind up, Craig. In Jasper Jones, you've created one of the most memorable characters, I think, in Australian literature, and I have a feeling that Honey Bee is going to be equally significant. How do you manage to capture the voices of young people so authentically? Well, it's it's largely the same process of trying to capture anybody's voice. You know, Vic is an elderly man, and I feel as though I came to know him quite well. Also, uh, you know, you're when when you're writing fiction, you're adopting a number of voices. The truth is, for me at least, I can't speak to other for other novelists, but getting to know a character is a little bit like uh, getting to know any stranger, any person. It requires you to spend time with them. And so, you know, I'm ashamed to say a great deal of my time uh, developing a novel is just spent in the company of fictional people. And I think about them, I worry about them, and I slowly let them unfurl. I let them come to me of their own accord. Where writing doesn't work, where it doesn't, where it becomes impure and dishonest is when you start to sort of try to speak on their behalf or to try and force them into places where they don't quite belong. Um, you know, these characters need to live on the page as, as real people, three-dimensional, complicated, um, uh, and honest. And what it just requires time. You've got to spend time with these people. And when you know that it's working, when you know that you have a novel uh, that has substance, is when your characters uh, drift into your thoughts as, as they might any other person that you would know. Um, it's, it's a strange phenomenon, but, you know, they start to invade your dreams. The, you know, you start to refer to them as people that you know. Um, and so voice is just something that emerges from that. It's as though they speak on their, their own terms. And so, of course, uh, you know, as a novelist, I'm interested in speech patterns and I listen to people very, very closely. Um, you know, I, I latch onto slang and, and to different modes and rhythms of speech. But, uh, you know, I just put that in my pocket and it waits um, until I have a character that, 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 that brings those elements to life. So I'm not sure I adequately answered your question there, but um, the, the only thing I can say is that for me, characters just emerge uh, from an unfocused place and slowly solidify and become real. Okay, final question. You said a little bit earlier prior to the release of Honey Bee, I put everything I have into writing Honey Bee. It tore me up, but it filled me with joy. Now, I've seen the footage on your Facebook page of the look on your face as you opened a box full of copies of Honey Bee. Clearly a very emotional moment for you, understandably. Why does this book mean so much to you? It means a lot to me for, for, a, lot of, for a lot of reasons. 
One is that I wrote this book for this person uh, in an awful, tortured, anguished place. And I wanted to honor that person. I wanted to honor their story. Uh, just as I wanted to honor the people that uh, did me the great uh, service of, of volunteering their history and their uh, experiences. Um, you know, I wanted to tribute that by writing the best book that I possibly could. And, you know, typically when you write a novel, you will wring yourself dry, but this book goes to some devastating places, uh, some heartbreaking places. And it required me to steep myself in scenes that were very difficult emotionally, but also very, very joyous and triumphant. You know, there are moments of, of uh, great optimism and positivity in Honeybee also. And so I suppose I was just lurching between these uh, great emotional peaks and troughs. Uh, and so finishing it, uh, being proud of it, um, just meant a lot to me. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't do these things by halves. I, I, uh, it's a great honor to write fiction and, uh, to, to present stories. Um, and so to see an idea, uh, move into a functionally structured narrative, a manuscript, uh, that then becomes a novel, a book, something that you can hold. Um, it's an amazing evolution. Uh, and it's something that, I don't know, the significance is never lost on me. It's very, very special. So it's, a, it's an incredible moment when you get to see your book for the first time. Craig, thank you so much for speaking to me on Books, Books, Books. It's an absolutely fantastic book. I wish you all the very best of luck in its promotion. Saying that, I don't think you need luck. Um, I'm sure it will be received as it deserves to be. And uh, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thanks, Nicole. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au, to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.